as I was <coughs> coming out of the dining room this evening and uh, I saw the, the group or groups, I don't know, of, um, of tourists that had arrived and it kind of made me reflect on how much the, the outer world is sometimes such a good teaching and a good mirror for the inner experience. And I was, you know, just reflecting on that, how we're in this, you know, very, very peaceful place, most of the time very quiet. And then every once in a while, and we don't exactly know when it'll happen and when it won't, these buses arrive and there's color and sound and movement. Um, and it, it stays for a while and it meets us in different ways. You know, meets us in different ways. And then it passes. And we're back. You know, Somna is, is quiet again. <laughs> and it's the same with the inner life. Does that make sense to people? It's, this, it's such a good image. I, I, I was kind of just really struck by it. To, to our inner life, you know, that there's all that space, yeah, that we have access to. There's all that space. And yet things arise, and there's color and sound and movement, and we meet it in some way, and that can, you know, become our sense of that's all there is. Yeah? And yet it doesn't matter how many tourists arrive in some night, there's still going to be all this space. Yeah? And the same internally. And if only we could remember that, you know, if only we could remember that. Well, at least if I could, maybe you, maybe you do. <laughs> if only I could remember. So, within that movement of things arising, within the space, yeah, things arising and the way we relate to them. You know, there's very much that, um, that sense of self that's involved that Nathan was speaking about yesterday. And one really helpful, one really useful way of, of looking at at the self and what it does, how it relates to these movements, to this color, to this sound, to whatever is arising, is um, through this idea of a spectrum. And Nathan spoke about one spectrum yesterday from you know, when the sense of self is, is very light or quiet um, or subtle to the other side of the spectrum when it's very loud or very gross. Yeah, so that's one spectrum. That's, it's just really helpful. Again, I think for me, it gives that sense of the space. Yeah, it's not, you know, when it's loud, it's, it's not just that. It's, it's something that's in movement. It's not always going to be this loud. It doesn't have to be this loud. Yeah, it gives that movement. And another spectrum that is really important to, to remember with, with our relationship to experience, with our relationship to the self, is you know that it also runs on the spectrum of when it's functional, when it's useful, yeah? Like, you know, when we need to get to a retreat, you know, so we need to do all the arrangements 
to get this body and mind to wherever it is that we're going. You know, so it has function. It's useful. So from that, when it's functional, when it's functional, to when it's uh, limiting, yeah, or causing suffering, or getting in the way, or whatever, whichever language you want to use. Um, so I just wanted to kind of really also draw that that spectrum and to really remember and that our our interest, our work, our practice is about both kind of um, when I was thinking about this, I was for some reason getting um, this image of kind of ice skating, which I've never in my life done and probably never will. Um, but of something that like you know getting that kind of like whoosh, you know ability to kind of whoosh, along the spectrum, that fluidity, you know that ability to really gracefully and, and, or sometimes clunkily, but to move, you know, along the spectrum. That's a, a huge part of what, we're, uh, of what we're doing, yeah? To, to find the skillful way, yeah? Skillful way to, to flow along that spectrum in a skillful way. And um, I want to I wanna read a, a quote from Albert Einstein, of all people who uh, sometimes when I, you know, this is a quote, he's been quoted in a book, and sometimes I've, I've become quite wary of these things. So the book says this is by Albert Einstein. You know, I haven't, I haven't looked it up on one of those uh, websites that kind of tell you if the, if the quote is really, you know, that person or not. But anyway, it's, it's, it's good, whoever said it. So, a human being is part of the whole called by us universe. Yeah? A human being is part of the whole called by us universe. A part limited in time and space. Yeah? The human being, this human being, that human being, that human being, any human being, uh, we're a part of the universe and a part that is limited by time and space. It's interesting, the use of the language, they... <laughs> I, I just kind of noticed it. It's not we, it's they. So maybe it wasn't a human being that, that says this. But they experience, experience themselves, their thoughts and feelings as something separated from the rest, a kind of optical delusion of their consciousness. Yeah, it's an optical delusion that causes us to experience ourselves as separate and to experience our thoughts our feelings as separate and as um, as really solid, yeah. Like a bit like when the I think it was yesterday morning when the we weren't having breakfast alone in the dining room. <laughs> like what? That kind of experience. That's a delusion of the consciousness. This delusion is a kind of prison for us. It restricts us to our personal desires and to affection for a few persons nearest to us. Yeah. Quite strong but very beautiful language. So this delusion is like a prison. Yeah. It restricts us to our own desires and to affection for a few persons nearest to us. Our task must be to free ourselves from this prison by widening our circle of love and compassion, to embrace all living creatures and the whole of nature in its beauty. Yeah. So I could stop right there. 
Yeah. Our task to widen the circle of our love and compassion, to embrace all beings and nature in all its beauty. So widening the circle of love and compassion as a way of freeing ourselves, yeah? And as a way of living, living well, yeah? Kind of, sometimes it feels, you know, it's really what the heart, the being, is searching for, that widening, that widening. And, you know, this is what we're doing here, in case you've forgotten. <laughs> this is what we're doing here, that widening of that, those circles of what is included, who is included. So I want to I refer one more time to, to something Nathan said last night, and that's going to be the last time, I think, in case you think I'm going to give, I'm actually giving the same talk in a slightly different variation. I think last year, actually, I was giving a talk here and I, I kind of threatened the, the participants that I would, I would actually use the same notes every evening and see how different the talk came out. I've, I've yet to, to have the courage to actually do it. Um, I think one, one time I might try and do a retreat like that and, and see what happens. But anyway, it's not tonight. So last night, Nathan was um, kind of walking us through this thing of the body is not one nor many. Yeah? Do you remember? And also um, speaking about the Buddha, um, when asked, is the self real or not? Does it exist or not exist? You know, and the answer usually being it does not, it neither exists nor does not exist, yeah. And for me, those two kind of things point to a kind of, they give me the same kind of buzz, you know, the same kind of um, sense of holding a question, holding an inquiry in an open way, yeah? Like not one and not many. Does not exist, nor does it not exist. And where does that kind of where does that put us as human beings? Some teachers and, and I, I I really love this way of, of speaking about it, they call it this is this is actually the middle way. <laughs> yeah. This is the middle way that's so crucial, or one of the ways of understanding the middle way that's so crucial to the Buddha's teachings. That ability to kind of stand on that which is shifting. <laughs> And moving, yeah. So we're staying with the openness. We're staying with the questioning, and we're staying with that sense that we get of it. Yeah, sense that we get of it. And when we do that, we one thing that we learn to see, that we learn to recognize, is that instinctive pull that we have as human beings to get some ground under our feet, you know. We're often so uncomfortable with, with just an open question or something that cannot just be put into a box. It's this, 
yeah, and it's not that, yeah. It's kind of back to that ice skating thing along the spectrums. So we start to see, you know, how strong that pull, that instinctive pull is to get some ground under our feet, to define, to stabilize things. And that we do that as a way of holding on to a world of constant change. Yeah, The world is changing. I mean, you've been doing the practice today, seeing the inconstancy and the impermanence. So if we notice this instinct, that pull, to find, to kind of stabilize things, it's worth exploring for ourselves, where does it lead? Does it bring happiness? Does it lead to suffering or does it lead away from suffering? You know, the, the simple and profound question. And the Buddha sometimes used the, the image of, um, you know, sometimes we realize, Nathan was using the image of the rope yesterday, I said I wasn't going to refer to his talk anymore. <laughs> then it goes. But the Buddha sometimes used the image of a hot coal, you know, that we realize that what we're holding on to or what we're trying to do is like a hot coal. And when we realize that we're holding on to a hot coal, we naturally let it go. We drop it. Yeah, we drop that which is causing suffering. So... The Burmese um, meditation master, Upandita, he's got a beautiful quote, meditation instruction. And he says, be smooth in your meditation practice. I love that. Be smooth in your meditation practice. I have no idea what he means, but I love it. (laughs) Be smooth in your meditation practice and foster a gentle presence. Be guided by an understanding of the middle way. Here's the middle way again. Be guided by an understanding of the middle way. Neither holding on to or rejecting anything. Neither holding on to or rejecting anything. It's, it's really profound, you know. It's, it's very simple, yeah, and very basic. And we hear it in the teachings again and again. It's extremely profound. That cultivation of gentle presence and being guided, guided by the understanding of the middle way, neither holding on or rejecting anything. One way of understanding this, this can be, we can understand it in many ways, and, and I, I just want to go into one way of, of how we can understand this, one aspect of the teaching that we can pull out from this uh, meditation instruction by Upandita. Um, one way is um, to look at craving in this context. So craving is both that movement of holding on to something and the movement of pushing away, of not wanting And the Pali word for craving is tana, T-A-N-H-A, which literally means thirst. And it's, that's, you know, it's such a good 
is so much better than craving, yeah, to, to understand that movement, yeah, that sense of thirst, of lack, which, um, you know, we all know it, it's that kind of restless energy within us that's kind of looking for something to, to make contact with, we can say, and then to build upon And just to give you another bit of the dependent origination teaching, craving follows Vedana. Yeah. So when we spoke about Vedana yesterday, um, as that escalation that builds up from the contact with the senses to the unpleasant, pleasant, neither one or the other, to, you know, I like this, I don't like this, I want this, I don't want this. Yeah. And then more and more layers of building onto that. You know, I need to have it. I need to get away from it. You know, that, that whole movement. And this whole movement is also very much part of the building of that sense of self, again, that, or that sense of the, the imprisonment or the limitation, imprisonment or limitation that the sense of self can bring with it that Einstein was speaking of. So, in, in the teachings, they break down craving or they detail craving. There's three types, yeah? Three types of craving, three types, three ways this thirst or this restless energy kind of gets channeled, yeah, or comes, manifests, yeah. The first one is, um, is craving for sense desires, yeah, the craving for sense desires, which in many ways that seems like the most obvious one, I think. You know, that I, I, my sense of myself, all my happiness depends on having this, you know, whatever it is having more potato at lunch today. I'm sure that was difficult for many of us. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, whatever it is on, on having this, this food um, or having um, this degree of physical comfort or having um, this object or having this mental state. So it includes sense desires, includes um, the mind yeah. in, in, the, in the Buddhist um, Description of senses or understanding of senses. Does that make sense to people? This, this craving for sense desire. Sense, craving for sense desire. And when, we're, when we've described being on the Papancha train, you know, what underlines, underlies that is the craving. Yeah? So that's the restless movement that's kind of sucking us off into something. The second type of craving is the craving for becoming. The craving for becoming. Becoming, I'll just say this, not going to go into it in huge detail, but becoming is another link in the chain of dependent origination. So, and it kind of gives birth to the self. So it's the link between craving and, and the birth of the self. Um, so the craving for becoming is that same restless energy manifesting as as some kind of identity. Um, you know, to be someone or something. Like, for example, to be a good meditator or to be a bad meditator. Both becoming. <laughs> you know, they're both a sense of self. 
Yeah. So that you know that can it has a huge impact on our practice when that is present. Yeah. I want to be a good meditator. I want to latch on to being a good meditator, or you know, to be a you know a good teacher or a bad teacher. <laughs> Whatever it is, it's kind of all that to be something or someone. Yeah. That the craving for becoming, the craving for manifestation, as something that's, you know, out there and, and, and the building of that. The third type of craving is the craving for non-becoming. Yeah. So they get a little bit trickier to, to grasp as we go. The craving for non-becoming. And... This is, the, this is what drives us to disassociate and disappear from our lives. Yeah. So I think an example that probably we all, we all know, um, you know, that we've had a, a, a difficult day and all we want to do you know, is that we can't wait through the day for that moment when we you know, just get home, have a shower, get into bed and disappear. Yeah. I'm, I'm sure that everyone has had that experience in their lives. Yeah? That's the craving for non-becoming. It's actually sometimes described as a craving for annihilation. Yeah? It's just some, you know, things that are so difficult or that that is what comes through. Now, with the habit of the craving, they don't actually need to be that difficult sometimes for that to come up. Yeah? And so much of... Um, <coughs> of modern life and our modern life habits are, are about this, you know, watching TV yeah, um, can have this flavor. Reading fiction can have this flavor. Um, certainly the whole world of internet um, can have this flavor. You know, just the, the things that kind of disconnect us from experience. Disconnect us from experience and we completely disassociate and disappear. So really important to remember with this, you know, and, and we keep reminding this, it's, it's not that um, having a sense of self is bad. It's not that wanting to be a good meditator or a bad meditator <laughs> is bad, you know, in itself. It's a matter of degree of contraction and of how lightly we hold it and how clearly we see it, yeah? That's what we're interested in, yeah? Seeing these processes, being aware that, that they are going on. We're interested to open our eye to the process and to cultivate intimacy and understanding yeah, with our lives because this is going on. You know, this is going on all the time. And when I was reflecting on this, um, I remembered this, this phrase. I also don't remember who said it. Um, but the phrase is, there's no way out but in. Yeah. So here we are. This is our, you know, we're in the human experience. You know, we didn't choose. Yeah, none of us chose to to be in the human experience. But here we are. And we can't escape it. Yeah. And we don't want to also most of the time. Yeah. So there's no way out but in. Yeah. Can we go in? Into experience. Look at experience. Again, that's what we're doing here. So 
I want to read another um, quote from Alan Clements, who I, you know, this is the what what happens to me. I read a book for usually it takes me a few months, and <laughs> then all my Dharma talks are peppered by quotes from that specific book. So this is a, another quote from Alan Clements, who's flavor of the moment. And um, here's what he says about this, no, no way out but in. The mind is a living organism that chaperones us everywhere, haloing our bodies like the atmosphere does the earth. Yeah, so the mind is always with us. It informs us of everything we think, feel, and say. Consciousness is as central to life as the ecosystem is to the earth. We can't live without it, nor can it be escaped. It is home. Neglect consciousness, denigrate it, violate it, and like the earth, the individual suffers. We will suffer, and often causes suffering too. On the other hand, Nurture consciousness, look after it, understand its nature, inhabit it wisely, and we flourish and elevate society too. So he's giving a real sense of the possibility and also kind of a sense of responsibility almost, you know, of that, you know, this, this human mind and body that we inhabit, and having that sense of both that um, partnership, we can say, you know, we can't escape it. It's part of who we are. And that sense of responsibility to it. And through the responsibility to this individual mind and consciousness, the responsibility for everything. Yeah, for everything. So that real sense of care. And, and when I was reading this, it really felt to me that, that that ending phrase that he uses, nurture consciousness, understand its nature, inhabit it wisely, and you will flourish, as well as elevate society. That's the same thing that Einstein was speaking about in, in the previous quote. You know, when he was referring to uh, freeing ourselves by widening our circles of love and compassion. Kind of the same thing, that using it wisely. Yeah, using it wisely. So to go back to that Einstein quote and that image of a prison that he was using, you know, that the delusion that we have of our separateness is like a prison that limits us. And the walls of the prison are made of that delusion of separation. When love and compassion are present, and when we widen them, they actually erode, dissolve those walls. Yeah, they dissolve the walls of separation. So, I want to kind of bring the two a little bit together. There's been kind of two strands to the talk so far, at least two, (laughs) two intentional ones. And look at what happens. How does craving manifest when we meet suffering in the world, whether it's ourselves or the pain of another? 
And so sometimes we meet pain, save another, and what arises is that craving for becoming. Yeah? That restlessness in the meeting with the suffering, with the pain, becomes that craving for becoming. And again, that can manifest in becoming the helper or the savior, and it can also manifest as the one who's overwhelmed by despair. Yeah, that's also a form of that same form of, 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 the, of the craving for the becoming. Another response can be that response of the craving for non-becoming. Yeah, kind of get me out of here. Yeah, get me out of here. I, I can't handle it. I want to shut down. I want to disconnect. And we all know this in ourselves. Yeah, we all know this in ourselves. And we see it in the world very clearly. Yeah. And yet we also know for ourselves other times when we meet pain or we meet suffering and that whole movement isn't there. There's a natural arising of compassion, just a natural movement of compassion that cuts through this process, yeah, cuts through the process. And I think, you know, here in Somnat, there's, there's a lot of opportunities for that. And Nathan and I were talking about this earlier today. Um, you know, when we've been doing the Qigong in the morning, there's that sweet old man that walks by um, on the way from, from his um, room to, I don't know if he's going to, to, to have a bath or to do his washing or whatever. He's doing something in his morning routine because he's walking there, walking by there every day. And he's got no hands. Yeah, he's got no hands. I, I, I actually think, you know, even if he did, there's something about um, that just the heart, just, or the being, just responds with that sense of, Compassion that doesn't see the separation. So there's not a sense, there's, there's a, what can I do for us? That's what it feels like to me. What can I do for us? It's not like I want to help you. Yeah? It's like, what can we do for us? And the exchange, you know, with you know, a smile or the eyes meeting, or, there's such a, a sense of us there. Of a, of, of a connection, yeah, just a connection. And Pema Chodron, a Tibetan teacher, she, she says that in the experience of compassion, there is no hierarchy of helper and helped. Yeah, when, there's really, when the compassion is really there, there isn't that hierarchy of the helper and the helped. That Compassion actually dissolves that separation, again, like the walls, like the prison walls. It dissolves that sense of separation, and that's why it's so powerful. Yeah, that's why it's so powerful. So it dissolves the sense of separation. It dissolves the craving. It dissolves the becoming. It dissolves the sense of self. Yeah, or... Another way of saying it, the way I, I often experience it, is actually widens the sense of self. Like I was just saying, what can I do for us? Yeah? It just widens the sense of self. Like it's not limited to this, to this one. 
and it naturally, compassion naturally relaxes contraction, which is built into this whole process. Yeah, there's contraction in craving, there's contraction in becoming, there's contraction in the sense of self. They all arise together. Yeah, they're all um, dependent on each other. That's why it's called dependent origination. Yeah, they're all dependent on each other. So this, this aspect of, of compassion has really got this limitless, boundaryless quality to it, or immeasurable, you know, spoken of as one of the immeasurable qualities. And we really know this in our own experience, yeah? We know this. We've all had moments of, of experiencing this. And I just want to want to share a, a story from my own experience um, of of this kind of one of the most uh, the, the the most powerful times when this happened. Um, so this was a few years ago. I, I was in Palestine, and um, we were in the olive harvest, and I received a phone call um, in the olive harvest, and spoke to someone who's since become a very good friend. And I had been um, supporting him and his family over the previous two weeks in a, in a, in a process of... Um, <coughs> sorry, my mind's not very clear at the moment. His, his daughter, two weeks previously, had been diagnosed. She was nine years old at the time, diagnosed with bone cancer. And she needed to get treatment in Israel. And... Um, so we, we were supporting them through the whole process, first the bureaucracy of getting the, the, all that paperwork for her to, 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 get the, the, to, to get to his Israeli hospital, and then the bureaucracy of getting permits for her and her family to, to go in. Um, and originally, they only gave the permit to the little girl and to her mother. They didn't give the permit to the father, and this was the father phoning me. And... He, he phoned me that phone call two weeks into this whole process was to tell me that he finally had the permit, yeah, which had taken a lot of, um, a lot of work and a lot of, of um, energy from, from different people and a lot of, a lot of uh, strength from him, from him. And I always remember that the last step he needed to do, so the permit was issued, but it wasn't moving from the Israeli military office to the Palestinian coordination office. For some reason, it wasn't, it wasn't moving from one office to the other. And he had to go to the Israeli military office to get it. And he was really scared was really, really scared. And the, obviously the love for his daughter was stronger than the fear yeah, of, of needing to be there for her and with her. So he did it, and he, this was the phone call was as he was leaving that, that office with a permit in his hand, and probably after his wife, I was the second person he called. And in that moment when he... 
he phoned me and we were talking on the phone and I was in the olive groves and I just felt my heart just blown open, so wide. And I felt compassion for everyone in that situation, you know, for, for, for those people who make these rules and build these fences and these walls and don't give a permit to a father to go with this nine-year-old child to the hospital to get chemotherapy, you know, that, also for them. And it was, so, it was just compassion going out and including everyone. And it stayed, you know. I remember sitting down on a stone in the field and just staying with that feeling, staying with that feeling of compassion that had no one and nothing was outside of that field. And for me, it feels like this is, you know, one of, the, one of our gateways to the depth of human experience, you know, to the depth of human experience when... You know, for whatever causes and conditions, the, the heart just opens through that cultivation, through that movement of compassion and of love. And it takes us deeper and deeper. Yeah, it can take us deeper and deeper. And it reminds me, you know, whenever I reflect, I remember this, this, this happening and Sometimes I tell part of this story and then afterwards people leave me a note what happened to the little girl. She's must be about 14 now, isn't she? <laughs> yeah, she's 14 years old and in full health. And, um, whole, the, whole, the whole family still runs around her in circles as they've done since she was born. <laughs> she's that kind of character. So it reminds me that you know, compassion is a way of looking, yeah? It's a way of looking that we can cultivate, that we practice, that we aspire to and that we align with. And it supports a fabrication of the world, a creation of the world that inclines us to see the mutuality, yeah? The shared, the us the interconnectedness, you know, just like with the, the sweet little guy <laughs> in the morning through all the other, you know, beautiful people that we see here, yeah? It just it inclines that way of experiencing the mind. And this is why it's so powerful, you know, so powerful, because it shapes the world. It shapes the world, And so the more we incline, the more we practice, the more we align with it, the more we will experience the world through that way of seeing. And I, I wanted to say, tell a little, another little story from, from our experience about this. Um, and this was like also, I don't know how many years ago, but um, the the full month here in Somnath and Anandawan had ended and Nathan and I um, had travelled to South India on the train and we got off the train and we needed to catch a bus and the rickshaw driver from the train station um, drove us to the bus station and he was so keen on um, helping us 
that he saw a bus with a sign for our destination coming out of the bus stand. And he kind of <laughs> in front of it to stop it and kind of jumped out and explained to the driver. And, you know, we were in no hurry. But um, And then, you know, he was, yeah, he didn't realize how much luggage Nathan and I traveled with. <laughs> so eventually we managed to get on this bus um, with, I think we had seven pieces of luggage. Um, and of course the bus was moving, yeah, because, you know, it had been stopped. So we're on there with our seven pieces of, of luggage. The bus is moving. There's nowhere to sit. And um, we're kind of trying to hold on. And the, um, the ticket collector on the bus <laughs> comes up to us and starts shouting at us to, to put our bags away because, you know, all our stuff is in the middle. <laughs> And he starts shouting at us to put our bags away, and we're like, you know. And what we found ourselves happening, uh, what we found happening was that instead of reacting, you know, to that kind of craziness of the situation, you know, him shouting at us, and uh, we found ourselves um, standing on either side of this ticket collector. And I think Nathan was stroking his back. <laughs> and I was, I was kind of facing him and saying to him, it's okay, sweetheart. We're going to do it as quickly as we can. And when we talked about it afterwards, you know, it was out of character for both of us. But it was obviously, you know, the whole month we'd been here cultivating that compassion and metta and attitude, and seeing beyond, yeah, that movement and sound and color shooting through, yeah. So that understanding that this guy, yeah, he's shouting at us, and it may not be justified, but what's the, what's the best response, yeah? What's the best response? And the whole atmosphere on the bus changed. You know, he calmed down, people around started laughing, you know, and, and, and very quickly there was a community movement to sort out the seven pieces of luggage. <laughs> so that's the, you know, that's the, the possibility of cultivating that way of looking. Yeah, so it arises naturally in, in situations where it wouldn't normally. Yeah, where it wouldn't normally, when someone is shouting at us. So that reminder, that practice, the practice that we're doing here, it's an act of compassion, an act of kindness. And to come back to align with that, yeah, to align with that, because it can free. And to remember our intention, yeah, to come back and remember that intention, our intention for practice. It takes us back to that sense of space. And like with anything, you know, the sense of that sense of comparing or of judgment could arise here. You know, oh, this couldn't happen to me. Yeah. Or I'm not compassionate enough. Or I don't know this, you know. And just to notice that if it arises, it's an opportunity. You know, we can turn to that with compassion as well. Yeah. It's an opportunity. 
to see that that too, what underlies it is fear and insecurity. Yeah, it's not really out there to get us. So with compassion, we can see that whatever arises you know, is not a problem in itself. It's just calling our attention. It can be painful. It can be distressing. It can be unfair. Yeah. But it's calling our attention. Everything and everyone yeah, is calling our attention, is calling to be met with care, with concern, with respect. Yeah, everything and everyone, including you know, all the aspects of ourselves, all the aspects of ourselves. So whatever arises, you know, when we're practicing in here or when we're going through the other movements of the day, whatever arises, can we notice in that experience, is there dukkha? Is there suffering? Is there pain here? And if there is, and often there will be, you know, even if it's quite a subtle layer of contraction, can I turn to it with compassion? Can I bring ease? Can I relax? Can I explore? What happens if I breathe in a way that's soothing? What happens if I open out, stretch out the awareness? What happens if I relax the body? All compassionate responses and all ways of addressing the issue at the root, yeah, the root of it. It's so not trying to suppress, yeah, not trying to ignore. Just going to the root. So meeting all aspects of experience, all aspects of ourselves, in the same way that we meet some of the glorious people that live in this place, or as we meet a child. With that sense of neutrality, that sense of inclusiveness, that sense of interest. not holding on and not rejecting anything. So let's have a a quiet moment to, to bring this to a close.
<clears throat> when the, may the circles of love and compassion keep widening within us and around us. And may our practice together be for the benefit and the welfare of all beings everywhere, including ourselves. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.